Please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to another Perspective, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 2009 graduate of the Air Force Academy, (laughs) who went on to become an MC-130 pilot. After working up to the position of evaluator and instructor pilot in the J model, his career took a slight turn to incorporate defense venture capital into his resume. Working with companies like Shield AI, True Anomaly, and AIN Ventures, he acts as a spokesperson for the AFSOC pilots to improve the quality of products his community will use downrange. He currently serves in the Private Capital Integration Division as a reservist and is the founder of Stealth Mode, which I don't have much of a description on because they're so stealthy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Forrest Underwood. Hey, thanks for the introduction, Andrew. It's great to see you again. Yeah, it's great to talk with you. Um, yeah, we were talking a little bit before about warm weather. I know you went down to Florida for your holiday break, or I don't know if you have a break. Does that technically count? Uh, in the real world, we don't have holiday breaks. <laughs> <laughs> Just have holidays and like you either work remotely or you take a couple hours or a couple days off with your family. But yeah, it's not. It's not. Enjoy the vacations while in the breaks while they last, Andrew. <laughs> so Sixty days will probably be the like the last great one you get, but. Yeah, we actually went to Thanksgiving in Florida, and then we went to Germany to visit my wife's family and um, went to Paris for New Year's. So it was pretty awesome. That's what it was. My mind's a little mixed up. But um, to get right into things, we'd love to hear what brought you to the Academy. And before you know, you, you give your little description, I want to give the audience members a little, little background about something that we both have in common, and that's the Falcon Foundation. And then uh, we're both very grateful for it because it helped us get to the academy. But it's basically a an organization that helps fund cadets who don't necessarily get into the academy their first time to go to a military prep school, whether it's uh, Northwest Prep that you went to, Marion Military Institute that I went to, Georgia Military College, um, a whole bunch of schools nationwide that gives kids like us a second chance to um, – pursue their dreams. So uh, if you could just give a little background about what brought you here, including Northwest, that'd be awesome. Yeah, definitely. I partied a little too hard in high school and <laughs> I was, I was more of an athlete than an athlete. And when I applied to the Academy, they were like, Hey, thanks for your interest in national security, but like go to, go to regular college. You'll probably have more fun there anyway. <laughs> uh, and I was pretty bummed, honestly. Like I, when nine 11 happened, I, was ready to sign up to be in the Marine Corps. And the there was this Navy captain at our high school who was in charge of the JROTC program. And he's like, man, you play football and baseball and lacrosse. Like you're the president of your class. You should think about going to college. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, no, thanks. I'm going to go win the war for America. So like, it was nice meeting you, sir. <laughs> and he's like, well, let, let, let's, let's go talk. And he, he actually turned me on to the Naval Academy and He's like, hey, join JRTC and you know, we'll get you in the Naval Academy. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. Um, so I started that. And then one day I was bagging groceries at my job 
uh, in high school and I saw this guy walk in a flight suit and I was like, Oh my God, you're Maverick. <laughs> and he's like, he goes, no, I'm in the air force. My brain just exploded. Mm. You know, I had no idea what that is. Um, this guy turned out to be the wing commander of the Florida air national guard. Uh, at the time, Colonel Jim Firth, who is also an Academy grad and he was an ALO and it, he got, you know, I like drive out to the airport at Jacksonville. He puts me into the seat of an Eagle and is like, what do you think? I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> take Air- you up in the air. Uh, no, I didn't get to fly, but I got to sit in, you know, sit in the mighty Eagle and just, I was sold. So, uh, I was like, where do I sign? You know, how do I do this? And he goes, well, you know, you can enlist here in the guard and come back or, you know, have you ever thought about applying to the Academy? And I was like, yeah, I looked at the Naval Academy, but I think I'd rather just do this. He's like, well, look, you apply to the Air Force Academy. It's free. Um, you know, and either way, you'll get to fly F-15. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so he like coached me through the process. Uh, I get the thanks, but no thanks. And I call Colonel Firth and I'm like, hey, sorry, uh, it didn't work out. I need to come fly F-15s with you. He's like, all right, uh, sounds good. Let me just make a phone call and I'll get back to you. The next day, the Falcon Foundation called and said, hey, would you be willing to accept uh, a, a scholarship to basically do a year of prep school? Mm. And I was like, nope, I'm going to go fly F-15s. Thank you. Colonel <laughs> first, like, he's like, hear me out. You should do this. And like, he's like, it was just the best advice that I ever got. So yeah, it was it was kind of a an uphill battle. Um and the rest of my academy experience would be an uphill battle. But I, th- through the Falcon Foundation and mentors like Colonel Firth, uh, I was successful in you know, joining the Long Blue Line. Mm. You played lacrosse in high school? Yeah. Yeah, I played lacrosse too. I unfortunately had to give that up. <laughs> A lot of injuries, and I don't know if the coach wanted me or not. But uh, I don't know. I love hearing like East Coast guys and – I just love the sport and seeing where it's taken off with the PLL and stuff like that. Same. Yeah. I wish I was good enough to play at the Academy. Uh, that there was like, do you want to graduate or do you want to play lacrosse? And I was like, uh, <laughs> does that, a, do I have a choice here? Like, no, <laughs> like you, yeah, you need to go back and study for like Kim. What, what, what was it? They don't call it one Oh one there. It's like Kim 141 or whatever. Yeah, so, and to, I don't know if you had to do the, the follow on class. Oh yeah. Level class. Oh mm-hmm. my God. Uh, on many podcasts, I have complained about that, that, that course here. Uh, <laughs> but so a little bit about your time as a cadet, uh, we, I discovered right before we talked that you were an IP as well and, uh, wing command chief and vice president of your class. Is that correct? Uh, yep, exactly. Okay. I, I had kind of a u- unique experience, um, because I had gone to prep school, I came into, the academy knowing you know, I had a whole network of people that had gone to prep school and you know we go to the basic training well we show up the day before basic training like I'll meet up and kind of hang out and then uh, it turns out most of the squadron reps were had gone to prep school with me so when they look for nominations and we did a vote like you know all my buddies voted for me and it's like all right you're the you're the vice president and I was like oh sweet mm-hmm. <laughs> that's good that was cool because it was a four-year position and um, I got yeah, every time a cool speaker would come, I get to meet him backstage, and like, that was probably one of the highlights of the academy experience. Yeah, no, I think that's one thing. Especially, I don't. I'm sure it's the same every single class, but um, our class president, class of 25, is uh, Caleb Cavanaugh. He's one of my good friends. He used to cut his hair a lot. But I remember when they were trying to pick uh, class presidents, and there anyone who was a direct had no shot. 
Yeah. Because I mean, at that point, it's a popularity contest. Yeah. Because you are I mean, all elections. Knows, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, nobody knows what sort of policies you can do, have or power you have as a president. So they're just like, that guy is eccentric. And I don't know, <laughs> Caleb Kavanaugh. He came out on on stage and he was like. Bull six sucks. Bull six sucks. And he got the whole F1 like chanting it. And it was, it was just awesome. He won everyone's vote right there. But uh, yeah. Man of the people. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's always the, the, either the, the people who went to the P or, um, you know, I guess in your case, in your class, uh, uh, a prepster as they call him now. But that, that's sweet. So after commissioning, do you mind giving you uh, the audience a little bit of a rundown of what your time in AFSOC was like? Yeah. So I kind of stumbled into AFSOC um, because, uh, like I said, I wanted to fly F-15s. So my goal of going to the academy was just get a pilot slot. Like now I was on I was on the dean's other list uh, once. <laughs> I, I I just got crushed by the core curriculum, and I thank God I was a management major that probably saved me so that I got a class rank high enough to secure a pilot slot, but Hey, an inch is as good as a mile. So I took it. I went to Del Rio air force base because, uh, all my buddies were there and it had a lake and my roommate had a boat. <laughs> so I knew that the quality of life would be as high as it could possibly be, uh, you know, during that experience. And at the time I went through, um, you know, the air force was deep in the global war on terror there were not that many people like, there just wasn't huge demand for fighters, uh, particularly like air superiority fighters that I wanted to go mm. fly. And, you know, but there was a massive demand for cargo airlift and special operations. So when I got to track select, they were like, okay, everybody, you're all going over to the T1 squadron. And it was kind of like, what? This, there's not even like, you know, what, what's the deal here? And they're like, yeah, needs of the air force. Welcome. Welcome. You know? <laughs> and that mm. was like my, that was my first, uh, that was my first realization that, you know, the needs of the air force are priority number one and they always will be. So I got to the T1 squadron finished UBT and they basically gave me the wish list and they were like, what do you want? I'm like, I wanted a 15. <laughs> like, sorry, man. Like that's a, that ship has sailed. So like, what can we, what on this list, you know, is something you want. Mm. And, and I kind of was asking a bunch of the IPs and, uh, one of the guys was like, I don't know what a C-130J is, but it's to Ramstein. Like, you should take that. And I was like, what? I was like, what is that about? He's like, you'll thank me later. Like, okay. <laughs> so I put it down uh, and I got it. I got my first choice. And I went to Little Rock for training, spent nine months there, learned the J model. It was like brand, a brand new airplane at the time. Um, it, you know, it was wild being, because like all the people that had go through C-130 training all go to Little Rock. And there was a small contingent of people that were doing J model training. Uh, and I showed up there and they're like, Oh, you're going to Ramstein. Like, just get ready, man. It's all downhill after that. Like you're going to end up at little rock. You'll be at Dias or something like that. And I was like, man, that's kind of weird. But I got to Germany and I understood what they meant. It was just an incredible assignment. I flew all over Europe, I flew all over Africa, got to respond to Benghazi, got to respond to Crimea. Uh, it's a really cool experiences. And when it came time for me to get my next assignment, I was like, Oh man, I don't want it to be all downhill from here. Um, but my commander said, well, are you interested in special operations? Uh, I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. Because while well, they're, they are buying this MC-130J, and if you're interested, the functional is looking for a guy, you know, like you. So we called up the functional, and he's like, hey, I got Underwood. He's, in, he's interested in spec ops. What do you think? He's like, hey, man, what base do you want to go to? I was like, what do we have? And he goes, well, we've got 
Cannon, uh, Mildenhall, and Kadena. And I was like, well, I've been in Europe. I don't really want to go to Cannon ever. <laughs> How about Kadena? He's like, you'll be the first guy there. But if you say yes right now, like you got it. Yes. <laughs> so I went to Kirtland Air Force Base for training. Um, did, I, and like, and again, new airplane, very new curriculum. Like literally the instructors there hadn't even flown the airplane. It was all hmm. theoretical or they're like J model guys that never flew MCs. So I kind of went through as the initial, uh, the initial cohort there and then shipped out to Kadena was one of the first guys and entered the world of special operations. Awesome. So I got, I got two kind of follow-up questions for that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> That's cool. I don't know. Maybe it's apparently if you put two fingers up, you put, yeah, the balloon show. That's cool. <laughs> so, um, first off, I, I mean, I have like buddies here who are trying to track, uh, special operations and I understand there's a big component of personality playing into that selection. <laughs> And to be an AFSOC pilot, is it somewhat similar that it sounds like you were at, to some degree handpicked because, you know, you might fit the description of what they want from an AFSOC pilot? There is, at, for the Air Force Special Operations Command, there are only assessment and selection for very specific units. Um, at the time when I went through, I went through kind of the more traditional route. Like back in the day, they used to have commando look where, you know, you'd go fly C-130s and then if they liked you, they would recruit you and go train you how to do special operations. At the time that I went through um, and during, you know, during the global war on terror, there's just such a huge demand that they were taking people directly out of pilot training. So even though mm-hmm. I went the more kind of traditional C-130, MC-130 route, um, some people went directly. And um, I would say that what they're, what they're really doing is, I mean, yeah, they're looking for the right kinds of personality like you're not they're not looking for the best person they're looking for the right person um but you're going to get a ton of extra training to do all the different mission sets and there are a lot and when the stakes are that high and the job is that challenging they you you need the right person but you also need the right training so it's definitely a combination okay and a follow-up to that um i guess the only other kind of basis that I'm trying to ask this question on is I, I, I interviewed a U 28 pilot and he was one of the first cohorts to go, uh, to have U 28 in weapon school. And he kind of told similar stories of we were the, not, I, I don't want to sound like he was gloating, but he was talking about being like the pioneers of, you know, talking about theory of how this new aircraft will be flown the most optimal way. And so was that kind of like a similar challenge for you and your cohort of there's this new aircraft, we got to figure out how we're going to deploy it. I would say that the weapons officers, like, like that guy, that's their job. Their job Hmm. is to squeeze every drop of capability out of a platform like that. Uh, When I, when I, when I, like as the initial kind of cohort of folks, like starting to fly the MC-130J in Kadena, um, they had already had an initial cadre, so they had like the like the first guys that flew it. Um, but for us, it was really like putting the play, putting the plane into its paces, you know, flying it around the Pacific, taking it to new bases, um, doing new missions, doing you know refueling missions, doing d- different types of airdrops. Uh, you're really trying to build a base of capability and also expand the portfolio of special operations that you can do out in the Pacific. 
And of course, you know, that was as you know, the right during the rise of China. And that was when KJU was shooting missiles out of Korea. Like it was an exciting time to be out there mm -hmm. and to be doing special operations. Um, and I would, and I, I guess I would say like, you know, as the, the weapons officers, they definitely have their, their role in trying to, you know, push the envelope of tactics, techniques, and procedures. We were really just trying to you know, get from in like an initial operations capability to the full mission capability. Okay. Gotcha. And I guess my, my, I said two, but, uh, my third follow-up question is, uh, I understand you're probably working with a lot of, in a lot of classified stuff, missions, that sort of ordeal, but do you have any memorable missions from your time flying special operations that you'd be willing to share? And hundred percent cool if not, but yeah, I would just love to hear a story. Yeah, I mean, I rather than talk about any one particular mission, I mean, I got to do the first MC-130J deployment out of Kadena, mm. um, which was which was an incredible honor. You know, they said, "Hey, we need a crew to go to Afghanistan with the new airplane," and you know, Forrest, we want you to go do it. Uh, and I was I was incredibly grateful. It was cool to you know take the new airplane out and go to the to Afghanistan to do those types of missions got to do some really exciting stuff there, but also just in general, got to do some, go to a lot of really cool places and work with a lot of great people. You know, and, uh, when I was in Ramstein, you know, we flew all over Europe and Africa doing training with the Polish and with the Romanians and with the Norwegians and with the Danes and flying all over Africa doing humanitarian missions. And uh, that was, that was wild. And then I got to the Pacific and I had kind of a base of understanding for some of that stuff. So we go down to Thailand and work with like their special operations or go to Malaysia or the Philippines or um, go to Mongolia or India or New Zealand or something like that. You, know, you just you get to see a lot of really cool parts of the world and work mm. with some just incredible partners. Yeah, so, yeah I, I loved all that. Was there ever trouble with the language barrier, you know, communicating and working with uh, other countries forces? Yeah, well, there's always. <laughs> there's always there's always very yeah, but, that, but that's actually but that's actually why we do it you know we do it to mm -hmm. build relationships with these countries and with these forces and to train each other so we learn how they do business in their country they get to learn how we do business and the goal is just to make each other better so that you know if we ever need a call on thailand or they ever or the philippines ever need a call on america like we've worked together before we've got mm -hmm. we've trained we've got relationships and that's really the name of the game it's it's never been more important um to have great partners and be competent and interoperable. Mm. Awesome. So you spent the first part of your career kind of, you know, having some fun flying around doing missions, but also gaining credibility for what you're, uh, what I suppose that you're doing now. Um, defense tech on behalf of AFSOC. So moving into that defense tech sector, um, what is that? And yeah. another thing I kind of want to tie into, uh, because uh, innovation is kind of like his big buzzword. And even I'm taking management 400, which is the innovation capstone. And they talk about this tie to accelerate change or lose. So I'd love to hear, you know, what it is and what you're doing in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's maybe start with the last question first. Right now there are, there are more problems then we have solutions. And some of those are capability gaps. Um, some of those are resource constraints. Some of those are just the threat is evolving and we need to adapt. Uh, all of that requires innovation, you know, like new ways. And the way I kind of think about it simply is, 
you need new inputs to create different outputs. Mm. So if like, if you, you know, if you're a hammer, <laughs> everything looks like a nail. Um, but if you can put more tools in your kit, then you can solve different types of problems. Um, what we're finding is that in this global era of competition, we can't just go back to, you know, historic spending levels of the cold war and outspend our enemies that we, we need to be very efficient. We need to think about all the instruments of national power, which you probably learned in MSS. Dying. Uh, dying. Yeah, exactly. And like, yeah. that's the exact framework that I understand and use today when I think about, you know, the $800 billion a year military instrument of national power, if that is, you know, basically zero sum and we're not going to get any more money, how do we use that money better? And how do we leverage the other instruments to be more effective? Um, the economic instrument of national power is incredibly effective. So when we think, when the, when the DOD and the Air Force are thinking about how to accelerate change or lose, it's important to consider industry as partners. And right now we've got, you know, the primes, the five primes. Um, we've got six of the defense tech unicorns, Shield AI, Hawkeye 360, Rebellion Defense, um, Palantir, and Epirus. And those companies are specifically focused on solving some of the technical technical problems that the DoD has, uh, rather than kind of putting the commercial markets first. They've they've chosen to prioritize the DoD. So um, after working at two of those uh, companies, I decided, well, the, the the reason I decided to work in those companies is because I felt incredible tied to the mission. And after leaving AFSOC. Even though I, you know, I, I really enjoyed my time. I wanted to stay close and I wanted to stay in the mission. So I chose mm-hmm. Defense Tech, the companies that are prioritizing you know, the defense market, um, but also leveraging incredible technology to build these businesses to service their, you know, the warfighter. So um, although I, I, you know, my my scope has increased pretty dramatically, where you know, as an AFSOC guy, I was really focused on. You know, the air domain, I went to Shield AI where we were focused on autonomy, you know, AI for unmanned systems and manned unmanned teaming and weapons and mission systems. And then I went to True Anomaly where we were focused on space. Now I support cybersecurity companies and I support uh, a variety of different types of defense tech companies, um, which is really cool because now I get to see all these different domains and see how it all kind of comes together. And the, the, the differentiator here is that you can move at the speed of technology industries, which is just incredibly fast, and the DoD is mm. the beneficiary. Okay. Bouncing off that, I just finished reading um, what's it called? The Kill Chain. Yeah. Chris Major Rose. Bryce Lucan actually lent me that book. I'm gonna go give it back tonight. But uh, I just I just finished it, and it was the first time I'd ever heard of this thing called the Death Valley. Is that Valley right? Of death. Or the Valley of Death. Yeah. And. Um, it's interesting hearing how the, the politics of civilians and Silicon Valley being this innovation for, um, you know, civilians, you know, we have, what's it called? The Boston dynamics having all this technology of, we have robot dogs, but they're unwilling to attach a weapon to it. So we have, it's not like this innovation isn't here. It's just that people are unwilling politically to you know contribute to the mission and i think it's just a, such an interesting dynamic that goes on within a free country like ours 
yeah, I, I would say that it's a little bit more complex than just being unwilling to use something. Um, mm. You know, in in defense tech, there is a a well known gradient called the technology readiness level, which is from zero to being like like you're it, it's just an idea to nine it's been deployed in combat. Hmm. Um, there's a so having worked in uh, you know, AI companies and working space, we developed a construct around trust readiness level. Okay, it does all these amazing things, but do commanders trust it to employ to be employed? Will operators trust it and use it? That's a totally different question. And just like anything, you know, you, you have to demonstrate it. You've got to practice it. You've got to work mm-hmm. with it um, and build trust. Just like it, you know, as a as a new wingman in a squadron, like no one's going to trust you to go out and do that thing. You know, like no one's going to trust an unmanned, a loyal wingman to go fly on your wing until you've built up with the reps. The, mm-hmm. the, I think the challenge that we face and what Chris Bros is talking about is that the pace at which we need to develop the technology is increasing because the threat level is increasing. So mm-hmm. therefore, the the rate that we need to in, improve our trust and ability to adopt this new technology and use these systems also needs to increase. And that is that is where the valley of death occurs. So you know, they say, hey, that's a really good idea. People start working on it, but then either they don't accelerate the technology fast enough or they don't adopt the technology fast enough. And then it just never makes it across and ends up dying. Mm. And, and great companies with great technology, with great capabilities that we need can sometimes end up in that valley because the journey into you know the defense procurement process is long and arduous mm. so that's where i that's where i spend most of my time now is making sure that these founders a understand what they're getting into and b have a clear plan and a strategy for getting across the valley of death before they start the journey interesting okay thanks for clearing that up because i've never really talked to anyone about it but i've read about it so it's learning something new um, so investor and advise, advisor roles, I'm going to need you to walk me through this as well, because this is another thing I don't really know about. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's kind of an interesting world to live in because I had been a pilot, I've been an operator, I've worked in startups and what, what changed is that we had our first baby girl and I realized that you just get one startup at a time. They're like, I, you know, people that do startups and have kids at the same time. I just, I, I don't know how they do it. I certainly <laughs> found it incredibly challenging. And, you know, I spent so much time in special operations being gone, putting the mission first, putting, you know, putting my family second, that for the first time in my life, I had the ability to prioritize family and make the choice. So I did. And I took some time off from startups and I raised our daughter and I was here for her first steps and I got to support my wife. And that was just, that was incredible. Uh, and I also started getting phone calls from you know investors that I knew and other founders and you know, people that I served with that were going into these companies. And they just kept saying like, Hey, you know, we're having problems getting contracts or we don't really know who to go talk to, or how do, how did you do it? Like, is there, can you offer some advice? And I initially just started, you know, doing, you know, what, what would you do for the zoomies? And, answering the phone calls and trying to help them. And, you know, they kept saying like, wow, this is incredible. Like no one has ever shared this with us. How do you know these things? I'm like, look, I've just done it. You know, mm-hmm. so I kind of learned to experience. I've got this card tissue to prove it. I don't want you to make the same mistakes. Like this journey is hard enough. If you're going to fail, it should never be because you don't have the right information. You know, the information I can give you, you've got to go do the hard work 
to make it happen. Mm. And uh, I found out that people were willing to pay for that. So, <laughs> so, so you're basically I, a consultant for Defense Tech. Is that what it sounds like? Yeah, exactly. I, I basically kind of come in and help them do their go-to-market strategy. I help them build their teams. Um, I advise their leadership, help work with their investors. Um, because the defense market is hard and it like it takes everybody to go be successful. Um, and I also got some experience when I was at the Defense Ventures program. A, uh, a Naval Academy grad named Mike Slaw reached out to me when I was in uh, AFSA. I was actually at SOCOM at the time. And he said, hey, do you want to come out to Silicon Valley for two months and go learn about VCs and startup? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Uh, my wife had been working at a startup, so I kind of got to see, and I wanted to, I wanted to see from, you know, a special operations perspective, how I could help. So I went and spent two weeks out there and I realized that it wasn't just Navy SEALs and Green Berets that were these small groups of elite teams that, you know, these startup founders are, you know, trying to solve the unsolvable problem every day. Um, so I was lucky to get, go through that defense ventures program, but also, when Sherman Williams, uh, a Naval Academy grad, and Emily McMahon, a West Point grad, stood up the, the Academy Investor Network, they asked me if I would be the Air Force Academy partner. Mm. And I was like, oh, I just learned about venture capital and startups. I'd, I'd love to help. And then, you know, I, because they don't have startup experience and I had been at Shield and True Anomaly, uh, I brought a different perspective from the operator's point of view, you know, you know as a pilot, but also in startups. So I, I do two things there. I help invest in new companies and I also help um, our, the companies that we've invested in be successful. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just a heads up about my bi-weekly newsletter for the Zoomies Bluff. In three to five minutes, catch up on past and upcoming episodes. Plus, for grads curious about cadet wing changes from a cadet's perspective, I've got you covered. Find the subscription link in the show notes or at forthezoomies.com slash newsletter. Now let's get back to the show. Have a knack through all of your previous experience through flying to pick, you know, not only what products, well, first off, what products you think will have success and bring value to the operators, but then furthermore, help those, like consult those pro winning you're placing a bet on those products to win and then helping like consulting them get to the operator. Am my I reading unique, that correctly? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. My, my unique ability is helping to understand the problem. Okay. So it, it's one thing to have a really cool widget. It's another thing to really understand the problem um, because a slight variation ends up being a square peg round hole problem. And no matter how good your square peg is, like it's just never going to go, it's never going to work. Uh -huh. So, really starting with problem curation and like that and like having been yeah, at the academy and going to through the air force and being in special operations and then going to business school at mit you know i, I really got a deep sense for how these joint war fighting problems with and business problems could actually start to be aligned to create value mm. and because i because i understood that very unique match I was able to identify companies who are building technology that I thought would be useful in solving some of these really hard national security problems. And I also got to experience that in two companies that actually were successful doing it. So now I'm able to go and uh, identify the right companies and place bets on them uh, and also you know, help other companies be successful. Okay, gotcha. 
and I didn't want to walk over. I know I didn't get right away, but I want to say congratulations on um, your daughter. Thank because you. That uh, it kind of warmed my heart to hear that you you actually because I hear so many stories of pilots getting to be deployed and then they can't be with their like newborn or young children and you know I it, as someone who is newly trying to like appreciate my relationships in my life more it 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 did make me feel good to hear that uh like you were able to experience that thanks yeah i i had a lot of friends who missed birthdays and anniversaries and special events uh, because they were deployed or you know they were overseas or on an exercise or a mission or something and you know that's just that's part of the job like you sign mm -hmm. you know what you're getting into when you sign up and you know, you're happy to do it you know out when you're out of the uniform you have a choice and i made that choice uh, to mm -hmm. prioritize my family and i'm grateful for it yeah well that's awesome it's it's great to hear that but you didn't completely hang up the uniform. You're still a reservist. And I would love to hear how that reservist component plays a role in, uh, because I mentioned in the, the intro, private capital integration division. Um, I've been talking to a few people, including, I mean, like I said, Major Bryce Lucan, Colonel Robert Mishev. He, uh, both people that are reservists, but seems like they have their hands deep in DOD innovation. So totally. if you could break down what you do, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, real quick story about both of those two characters. Uh, <laughs> I met I met Captain Rob Mishev when he was an instructor at the management department, and I was a I was a smack, and I we had a career day, and I rolled straight up because I had been to prep school, so I like already know what I want to major in, and I rolled straight up. I was like, "Hi, I'm ready to declare management." And I'm like, you can't declare today. <laughs> you got to go talk to everybody. I was like, no, I'm going to declare. I'm going back to my room. I'm going to like go shine my boots or something. <laughs> and Rob Mishev's like, I, I literally cannot sign you up today. But if you want to come, if you want to come talk to me, like if you want to come talk about it, like come see me in my office you know, next semester. I'm like, okay. And I like mark my calendar. And next semester I showed up, I go to the management department. I go, hi, I'm here to declare. <laughs> because he's like, I can, I can sign you up today, but you know what? You now don't have any option values. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, if you don't declare, you have all the options on the table. If you declare today, you don't have any options. You have, you're committed. What does it cost you to wait? Maybe mm -hmm. like, who knows what's gonna happen in, you know, over, over two degree years. Like you don't have to, or sorry, three degree years. Like you don't have to declare right now. And I thought, he goes, he goes let, let's just do this experiment. Like if, you, if you're so set on management, just wait. And at sophomore year, like I'll sign you up. Um, but who knows, like if something changes, let's talk through it. So I come back at the end of three degree year and I'm like, Hey, I'm back. I still <laughs> want to do management. He's like, did you learn anything? Did you talk to anybody else? I was like, yeah, I learned that I was never going to survive physics. There was no way I was going to be an astro <laughs> major, but I, I appreciate having options and I kept my options open and now I'm back. And that's just been sage advice that I took the rest of my career. And mm -hmm. now he's Colonel Mishev in the space force. And, uh, I actually work with the same organization that he does. So I, I, when I got out of the active duty, initially I was going to get out completely because I didn't think I was going to have enough bandwidth to be at a startup and be a reservist. And <laughs> Rob actually helped convince me to stay in the reserves and support the new space force. 
Uh, and I was like, look, I don't know anything about space. I, you know, I've been a special operator, I've been a pilot. Like I wasn't even in acquisitions. Like, I don't think I can offer a whole lot of value here. And he's like, you know, the, the space force knows everything. There is to know about space. Uh, we got that covered. They don't know a whole lot about joint warfighting, and particularly some of like the interesting defense ventures experience you have. And like, I think this would be a really great cross pollination opportunity. You help us, we'll help you. Uh, plus you get to learn about space. It's a new thing. I was like, okay. <laughs> so they put me on this thing called the reserve strike team where we built a brand new thing called the private capital integration division, where I got to use my venture capital experience, my startup experience to help space systems command, uh, develop better acquisition strategies to incorporate different capital partners, think about new innovative technologies. And it, you know, for the last three years, it's been incredible to help, you know, to see how that input and my, my unique experience is translated into some of these very innovative perspectives and shaping programs. Um, so much so that actually I got a call from the headquarters Space Force uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they asked me to come help as a reservist write the commercial strategy for the Space Force. What's commercial strategy? Basically, how do we buy better? Oh, okay. Yeah, and because the Space Force is like, look, we don't have, like the budget's not growing. So we need to think about how to leverage commercial partners better. Hmm. And, and for us, you've been helping Space Systems Command do this. Help us now write the strategies, like put all those lessons learned together so that we can mature the Space Force and provide the capabilities they need for the Joint Force. I was like, wow, that okay, that's that's a pretty cool job. I'd love to be part of that. Yeah. <laughs> that must be a pretty cool phone call to get. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's not every day you get like a phone, a phone call from the Pentagon. Force, we need you. Like, like, okay. But that is the benefit of being a reservist is that I Mm. maintain connectivity. I still understand the mission um, and I get to contribute in a really unique way. Mm. So if you could clarify for me, my understanding of reservists is like weekend warrior, that sort of thing. Like one weekend a month, you go in uniform and you go train. This is probably far from the truth. If you could clarify maybe like the time commitment that you end up all things considered putting towards the military, even though you're reservist status. Um, yeah. Could you break that down? Sure. Yeah. Every, every reserve job is a little bit different. Um, there's kind of a minimum that you need to do and it ends up being basically, yeah, like you said, two weeks a year and then, you know, maybe like a weekend a month or something. Um, I'm kind of a unique reservist. I have, I'm an individual mobilization augmentee. So I go help active duty units where they need support. And uh, that's where I use my kind of unique skill set. So I end up doing, I, you know, I like, I, sometimes I don't do anything for like three months and then I'll do like three months of orders or sometimes it'll be like, Hey, come out and do a, a week long sprint or like work on this on the weekends or a couple hours a day, you know, we, we can get kind of creative because we can be flexible. And I really enjoy that. So I, I mean, there's like very traditional reserve jobs out there that have the kind of schedule that you described. There's mm-hmm. also uh, kind of unique jobs like being an IMA, like I have. And there's also full-time reservists, people that go to the reserve and take a year's worth of orders or a couple of years worth of orders. And you put the uniform back on and it's like, that's your daily job again. Um, but the beauty is, you know, you could have this permeable career. You know, I, I really enjoyed spending my time on active duty and then getting out and going and doing defense tech. And then now being able to put the uniform back on 
and use those skills to help write the strategy for the Space Force and then hopefully go back out into industry and then, uh, you know, kind of keep going back and forth and making each other better. Mm. All right. That clears it up a little bit. I've also, I've talked to someone else who's an IMA and to my knowledge, there's like three different types of reservist statuses and they're like letter oriented, like one's E, I think, right? Yeah. There's different categories. Thumbs up. Yeah. There's different, <laughs> there's different categories of reservists. Um, and yeah, we could probably do a deeper dive on, on reservist stuff later, but I would say that yeah, yeah. anyone getting out of the active duty should consider the reserves. Uh, one, it's just a, it's a great way to stay connected to the mission in the military. Um, it's also uh, like, you know, healthcare is expensive and TRICARE reserve is an affordable option. Um, also, you know, if you have a security clearance, you get to maintain that, which has been useful. And, you know, there's, I would say it's just a great, um, it's a great way to you know, continue working toward retirement specifically, you know, like I was a pilot, I did 12 years on active duty. I didn't want to just flush that away with my pension. So mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of benefits to, to being a reservist. And, you know, the, unlike active duty where you have a big commitment, like if you, you if you decide to go to reserves and a year later, you don't want to do it anymore, you can just stop. Mm-hmm. Okay. So staying involved with the Academy, shifting gears a little bit. Um, you've had multiple roles that help you, you know, keep your finger to the pulse of the Academy, if you will. Uh, I guess starting off AOG executive committee member. Uh, what is this role? How did you get it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, the AOG doesn't get a lot of love. They, but they should, you know, there's, there is, um, there's a ton of things that the AOG does behind the scenes like this. There, so like at one of the things you get to do as class counsel, uh, you know, I was the vice president. Once you graduate, you get to serve as your class representative to, you know, in the alumni association. So, and then, yeah, every, every year, every class has a rep that comes back. The executive committee is a small group of those representatives that get to basically represent all the alumni to the AOG board of directors. Um, and what we're really doing there is just being the voice of the long blue line to the association of graduates to make sure there's connectivity between the alumni community, the AOG and the cadets. Um, and that's an incredibly fulfilling role because uh, it, one, and one of the efforts that I've been involved in is really kind of emphasizing the young alumni initiative. Uh, you know, we get lots of all the old grads out there, you know, you see them at football games, you see them putting statues up in the air gardens and, you know, uh, do, doing all that. But, um, you know, when you're, when you're, you're five years out of the Academy, you know, you're thinking about, do I stay in? Do I get out? You know, do I, do I extend? Do I, you know, what, how, like, what should I do here? Well, you have this entire community of alumni that you can lean on and, you know, all these grads out there that, have to, everyone's transitioned at some point, whether it was the five-year point or the 35-year point. So, you know, how do we, how do we get young alumni engaged more in the AOG? Uh, how do we connect them with the alumni and, you know, keep them connected to the academy? And that's been really fulfilling um, because the, you know, when I, when I was at the academy, we used to say it's a, it's not a great place to be, but it's a great place to be from. Mm. And, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think I could ever say, whether I don't think the dean or the the commandant would ever make this place truly like a great place to be. Like it's got to be hard, and I, I wanted to be hard because back when it was hard, it made us this great. But I, I it should it should definitely be a great place to be from, and the alumni mm. 
uh, the AOG it has a huge role in that. Mm-hmm. That must be a pretty difficult task to represent your class of a thousand people. How do you, you know, I, I know there's a bunch of grads who have distaste for, you know, the AOG and just kind of remove themselves as a result of it. How, and so like that, that's taking away voices that could be informing uh, you to represent them at this board. How do you stay in touch and, you know, make sure that the people from your class are heard in these, in these meetings? Yeah. It's, it's sad that people disassociate um, because it's, it's, you can only make it better if you get involved and change it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you just sit back and are angry, you know, it's never going to get any better. So uh, one of the things that a couple of my classmates and friends did was we developed a Facebook group called the Yusafa careers and networking page. And it like initially kind of started off as a, you know, I was getting out of the air force and I was looking around and, you know, the AIG didn't really have great tools for networking with people. And I was using LinkedIn, but you know, not everybody that's, yeah, not every grad is on LinkedIn. And I was like, man, I know a lot of people are on Facebook. Like there's gotta be something out there like this. And there wasn't. So we made this page and within a month we had 4,000 grads on it. And then within a year, we had over 10,000 grads on it. And now we've got like 12,000. And I, we estimate that's about somewhere like it's like 25% of the grad population. And I realize that everyone's on Facebook and that's okay. But that's a, that's a lot of people that are mm-hmm. yeah, involved and engaged. So that allows me to stay connected to the alumni community. Um, I also hosted our, the class of 2009's 10 year reunion. So <laughs> I got everyone's email address. I got everybody's phone number and I did like a hundred percent contact where I like call, I literally called every single person and was like, Hey, are you coming to the reunion? They're like, uh, don't ever call me again. You know, (laughs) 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 but I, but honestly it was like, it was great because through the Facebook group experience, I kind of realized the power of networking and how to get people connected and, you know, having the 10 year reunion being a huge success, um, we, it, it made our class a lot closer. So mm. yeah, I like whether you're happy with the ARG or not, like, you know, we've got a Facebook group there, we've got, you've got your class tools. Uh, there's never been a better, it's never been easier to stay connected, but you got to do the work. Mm-hmm. Another thing we, the first time we met in person was at the Falcon foundation dinner during Corona week. And I didn't know this, but you are a member of the board of trustees for the Falcon Foundation. How did how did you get? Uh, I mean, I'm assuming you have to go to uh, a Falcon Foundation prep school in order to be that. But uh, like, how did you get that? What sort of impact do you have, and how does it help you keep in touch with the academy? Yeah, I uh, I actually got invited by one of the current board members. Um, they knew how passionate I was about the Academy and how active I was in, you know, the AOG and the executive committee. Uh, and, you know, I had been aligned with defense tech and they reached out and it was actually one of my classmates from prep school, Nick Kennedy. So Nick said, Hey, I've been on this board of trustees. Like, I think you'd be a great fit. Do you want to check it out? And I looked into it and thought it'd be a cool idea. It was a great way to give back and stay involved. So, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to be accepted. And yeah, now I get to come back to the Falcon Foundation dinner that I used to go to as a cadet and buy drinks for all the firsties, uh, you know, <laughs> show them what it's like to be on the outside. That it's, you know, it, it, it is definitely is a great place to be from, but you can actually enjoy it while you're there. 
So I, I really enjoy the opportunity and it's cool to be able to come back and contribute in that way. Okay. And so as a board member, what sort of decisions are being made? Yeah. Um, so I'm a board of trustees, which is different than a board of directors. Um, I'm okay. not directly involved in the decision-making, but uh, I know that the Falcon Foundation is thinking very hard about um, what schools they accredit, um, how much money they can raise to provide scholarships for the people like you and me who got to go to prep schools uh, and maintaining a high quality bar to make sure that the academy is getting the throughput they need for the cadets and graduates that they'll produce. Okay. So I got a question for you following that up. I, along with many other Falcon Foundation attendees, were a little bit frustrated that, you know, the Falcon Foundation was sponsoring us to go to these schools and we'd assume that those class would be credited and, you know, val uh, furthermore validated so we didn't have to take chemistry, physics, calculus, English, all these like core classes over again. And listen, I'm not I'm not trying to bust your balls because I understand that that boosted my GPA getting A's yeah. in those classes that I wouldn't otherwise get. Yeah, that boosted my <laughs> GPA. But on the flip side, um, you know, that leads to a little bit more of a like a core uh like people are having to take a lot more classes so what's the rationale behind not including those in the validation i don't know that's a question for the dean um i gotta <laughs> <Okay>. say I, <laughs> I gotta i mean i gotta just be honest with you like what, when i was at the academy i would ask questions like this all the time and you know, they'd be like go talk to Kavanaugh. go talk to the dean like you know mm -hmm. and you guys can do that you can ask those types of questions and um you know, the, our, our job at the Falcon Foundation is just to make sure that the the people that we think deserve a second chance get that chance. Mm -hmm. Now, now what happens after that is that's part of the admissions office. That's part of the dean's curriculum. Um, and certainly the AOG and the board of directors has can weigh in there. Um, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't speak for the dean ever. OK. Uh, but I, but I, but I, I do believe that you I mean to the point you made before going in and using that experience to up because you're going to have to take classes anyway, you know, get, mm -hmm. get your GPA up. Hopefully that improves your MPA. Hopefully that improves opportunities for you. But I wish someone would have, would have shared with me how important GPA is, how influential, influential that is in your MPA and how influential that is on all the different types of opportunities that the Academy has. Like when you're a, when you're a smack or a three degree, like you're just trying to survive. But then mm -hmm. when it comes time to go get an exchange as a three degree or a two degree at one of the other academies or go on a foreign exchange to, you know, one of the, one of the foreign schools or something, or go on a cool Olmstead trip. Like that's what they look at. They're mm -hmm. looking at your MPA, particularly your GPA. So yeah, maybe it sucks because you got to go to another class or two, but ultimately if you're, if you're smart about it and you leverage it correctly, can open a lot of really cool doors. Oh yeah, no doubt. Because I would not be, I'm in the top quarter of my class and I would definitely not be in the position that I am standing wise if it wasn't for, you know, my time at Marion. Kind of finishing out the episode, I want to talk about the topic of family. Um, we kind of dove into it a little bit before, but the importance of kind of, I don't know if this is a strategic decision or not, um, I've heard mixed things about when to have kids, when to start a family, when not to start a family, um, whether you should plan for it or maybe just purposefully make it more spontaneous. I don't know. But I'd love to hear your opinion on having kids and serving out your active duty service commitment. 
yeah, it's a very personal decision. I, mm -hmm. I think everybody, well, everyone needs to make that decision for themselves. Um, you know, there's a, there's a saying in the air force when you get out there, it's like, there's, there's never a better time to do blank. <laughs> like, and the, the, the reasoning or the rationale there is that you're always going to just, you're just going to get more responsibility. You have more work to do. You have less time, less discretionary time. So, and you know, the arguments that my buddies that had, that got married right after the Academy and had kids uh, that they made was, look, I get to have kids while I'm young. You know, the air force pays for you to, you know, they, they pay for your dependents and you get to move them around. They get to have this really cool life experience. I totally get that. Um, mm -hmm. Some people, they don't meet their significant others until later in life. Um, some people are deployed 300 days a year, like I was, and it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to like have a young kid at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is a deeply personal decision. Um, and I think most people that start families and get married and have kids are, are happy. So, and that's, and that's, that, that is mostly a product of being, uh, choosing wisely. Uh, the, I think the most important decision you can make in your life is who you marry. Mm -hmm. And if, if you need the time to think about it, take it. <laughs> uh, and, and ultimately I think you'll be happier for it. Okay. You know, I got, I got some decisions to make, especially with this whole like kind of relationship thing that has kind of came over me recently. Yeah. Like, Huh. I'm thinking a lot more about where I want to live, who I want to live with, who I want to spend time with, what do I want to do? Um, I don't know. These things, they, they, they are topics that kind of flow across my, my stream of consciousness pretty often. Good. Um, I, if one thing I'll add to that is there's a, there's a philosophy that out there that's basically says that you're kind of the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm-hmm if you do it right, you're spending the vast majority of time with your spouse and, and with your family. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, if you, if you choose wisely, that is, it's going to be net positive for both of you. You're going to spend so much time together. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's incredibly insightful and astute of you to be thinking about your relationships and where you spend your time because the, you know, there was a Harvard study on like what the greatest indicator of happiness is over many, many generations of people. And the number one indicator of happiness is strength of relationships. Uh, and those, a lot of those relationships start at the Academy. My best mm. friends in the whole world are guys I, and girls I went to prep school with folks that I went to beast with, you know, people that I went on ski trips on the weekends with at the Academy, my roommate that I went to pilot training with. I was actually, I, I, I was the, uh, officiant at his wedding. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, I mean, like these things, these relationships go, go a long ways. And the fact that you're thinking about it now and you're being deliberate about prioritizing them, I think says a lot about you. And I hope, I hope your classmates and the rest of the long line really thinks about that. Cause ultimately I do believe that is what will make you happiest. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I've, I watched a video recently. I forget who made it on YouTube, but it was about that Harvard study and seeing that did, kind of make me uh also i don't know if the name captain eric faunusbeck rings a bell to you he's a management no. instructor now he taught my organizational behavior class last year and uh, i don't know he told a pretty like eye-opening like hit you in the heart story on our last day of class about um 
one of his good friends that he unfortunately lost. And, you know, it made me think about my best friend. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm a, at times frustrated that I'm here, but I really do enjoy here. But me being away from my best friend for so long, it is kind of like tough. Sure. I want to spend more time with him. I want him to, I, I appreciate the influence that he has on me. And, um, uh, it relationships is, is sort of the, that thing kind of just bringing that back in, but also the grad and classmate family, I think, uh, the, the term family can be interpreted multiple ways. I would agree that family is not just blood. It is people that you can spend time with, share ideas with people that you just enjoy their company. And there's plenty of that with the kind of people that admissions brings into this place. And I'd love to hear your experience with, with the grad family. Cause it sounds like you're very involved with them. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've remained close as my, as my class's representative. Um, I've been involved with the AOG. I'm involved with the Falcon foundation you know, where I can get involved with the Academy. I try. And then I, stay involved with my classmates and, you know, everyone, whenever I see a grad at the airport, like I see the smacks in their uniforms going home for Christmas. <laughs> like I always go over and say hi to them because I know what it's like. And I just, I mm. thought, I think it's cool. And like, we need to, we need to stay connected and we need to support each other. Mm. And there's an old, there's an old joke that uh, if you want to be a CEO, you go to West Point. If you want to be a, a Senator, go to Navy. If you want to be a Delta airline pilot, you go to the Air Force Academy. I just thought uh, this, this Academy has so much more to offer. Yeah. You know, and guys like you and yeah, guys like you and the people that we know have so much incredible potential and, you know, I hope you go fly and I hope you enjoy it and you love it. And then you go out and you do something else that you love Mm. and you should, and there's, there's incredible opportunities out there. And the thing that I keep in mind, you know, the, the, the Naval Academy in West Point, are you know, 250 ish years old, you know, the air force Academy, if right now we're, we're like teenagers mm-hmm. you know, compared, compared to them. But if we do this right and we set the trajectory, well, by the time we get to 250 years old, we are going to eclipse, you know, Navy and West point. And that's my goal that like, we want to, we want to plant the seeds and cultivate the right relationships and put people in the right positions to go be successful. And I think you're doing an incredible job of that with this podcast is, you know, elevating what, you know, what incredible things people have done as cadets and what they're doing as alumni and helping to bring attention to that. That's what we need. We need more of this. Um, Mm. Rising tides lift all boats. And I really appreciate you. Thanks for bringing me on. Oh yeah. Thanks for, thanks for coming on and sharing all your expertise. Hey, thanks for listening. Make sure to follow and leave a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed the show and see what the team is up to on our Instagram page for.the.zoomies as well as our website forthezoomies.com. Catch you on the next episode.